3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. This is Tuesday Breakfast. The time is 7am. I'm joined by Fung and Evie. My name is Genevieve. (laughs) (laughs) How is everyone doing this morning? Not too bad, actually. Yeah. Yeah, feeling good, (laughs) ready for for the Easter break, just ready for four days of holiday. And we were just talking about um, off-air just before the show started that it's going to be really warm. Yeah, (laughs) might go to the beach. (laughs) Which feels so weird for April. Yeah, I fully mentally... Prepared myself for no more warmth. Yeah, thought it like got the last bit got squeezed out like a week ago, (laughs) and that was going to be it. Mm. But no, (laughs) just one last gasp before cold winter. Yeah, (laughs) until the darkness falls. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of the weather, uh, it's going to be a top of 19 degrees today, partly cloudy with a low of 10 degrees. Um, yeah, so pretty classic Melbourne autumn day. Mm. Um, I do love Melbourne in the autumn though. I think it yeah. like really like turns up. <laughs> it's really this pretty. Is, it's actually been like, I think about 10 years since I moved to Melbourne and mm. I just associate autumn with that sort of, oh, new city, new start. I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's very yeah. lovely. You just like the wards of like leaves. It feels very like, yeah. Mm. Um, all right. Well, we've got a pretty packed show today. Um, after the news headlines, which are going to come up uh, next, um, we have um, Carnegie has just done an interview with Kate Robinson. Um, I've also going to be doing an interview with uh, Ria Pillay about um, the refugees um, detained in Carlton um, at the moment, and also an interview with Kristen O'Connell from AUWU. So a lot to discuss. Also a lot to discuss in news headlines, um, which uh, just after this we'll be coming back with to you with. Like everyone, people who are LGBTIQ+, can experience suicidal thoughts. Living Works deliver workshops that give you the knowledge to help others in the LGBTIQ bus community. Thanks to Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network, from now until the end of May, Living Works is offering workshops for the LGBTIQ bus community completely for free. Visit livingworks.com.au to learn how you can help save a life. Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're back on Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, this is the news headlines for uh, tw- the 30th of March. Um, JobKeeper and the rental eviction moratorium uh, ended on the 29th, so that was, God, yesterday mm-hmm. <laughs> um, of March. Um, and a new Residential Tenancy Act reforms come in also yesterday. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about that because I will be talking about that later. 
Um, I did also just want to flag that a Justice for Melody vigil protest happened yesterday at Sydney Town Hall. Um, uh, Melody Poland Bruno uh, died in regional New South Wales in September. Uh, this is 2018, I believe. The 25-year-old man... Uh, the 25-year-old, sorry, was due to return home to Philippines just days after police found her unresponsive at a Wagga Wagga unit. Emergency services took her to hospital, but Melody died in the following day. New South Wales police later charged a 31-year-old man who was known to Melody with manslaughter. Uh, this is the protesters in response to... Um, uh, trans rights, uh, the murder of a trans Filipino woman and the justice that hasn't uh, ever come out of that. Um, also just wanted to... Oh, sorry. Has, yeah, have you... Yeah, and so uh, the recent thing that's happened is that, that he, um, the man who was charged with her death, um, with manslaughter, um, had to be resentenced because they found mm. that the sentence wasn't appropriate. Uh, I just... It's good to see that, you know, that um, Melody's case is getting much more attention and hopefully bringing more attention to the struggles that um, trans women face in Australia, even now uh, with, you know, the the harassment um, and, you know, the, the violence committed against them um, not being taken seriously. So, yeah. Definitely. And um, I know that Ayan did an incredible interview uh, with the organisation that um, was running the vigils on Diaspora Blues. So if anyone wants to hear more about that, I'd highly recommend listening back to that. Um, in terms of an update on what's happening in Myanmar, troops have opened fire at a funeral as Myanmar mourns the bloodiest day since the coup. At least 114 people have died at the hands of security forces on Saturday during protests. The latest bloodshed drew, drew renewed Western condemnation. The UN Special Rapporteur for Myanmar said the army was carrying out mass murder and called on the world to isolate the junta and halt its access to weapons. Uh, foreign criticism and shank- sanctions imposed by some Western nations have failed so far to sway the military leaders, as have almost daily protests around the country since the junta took power and detained the elected leader, Aung San Suu Kyi. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Public housing class action. Uh, a lawyer leading Melbourne Tower lockdown class action is under investigation by the legal board a lawyer who has filed a class action lawsuit against the Victorian government on behalf of the public housing tower residents who were shut inside their homes during Melbourne's 2020 COVID lockdown is under investigation by the state's legal services board. The Melbourne-based lawyer, Serene Tafaho, Tafaha, sorry, who during the pandemic has appeared at anti-lockdown rallies and on YouTube with conspiracists such as the former celebrity chef Pete Evans. Sorry, it's cherry on top. Um, <laughs> <laughs> last week filed a class action lawsuit in Victoria Supreme Court on behalf of the residents. Yeah, this is the problem when you give a platform to conspiracy theorists because this means that vulnerable people can then be at risk. Um, because, you know, I, I don't assume that everyone is across uh, what this lady has been doing with Pete Evans the entire time during lockdown. Um, so, yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting outcome. I 
I know that perhaps, you know, people weren't necessarily happy with the results of um, the investigation into how the tower mm-hmm. was locked down as well. So obviously, you know, they're trying to get a remedy for that. So yeah. I, am, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Yeah, no, definitely. That's what makes it a quite a unique case, I yeah. think, because obviously, you know, you want a class action lawsuit against this. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of that class action lawsuit being led by um, somebody that's uh, <laughs> an anti-lockdown uh, person, and kind of, I guess it rings bells of taking advantage of a situation that yeah. shouldn't be taken advantage of. And the class action itself is, uh, it, like, in every sort of um, newspaper that it's been written about, it, it always has the description of very broad brush strokes mm. because it's not very specific at all. It's mostly written by someone who is angry about the lockdown full stop. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, just going to mention briefly as well, uh, Andrew Laming, uh, federal Liberal MP Andrew Laming, accused of was accused of online harassment by state Labor MP Kim Richards. Richards says Laming posted a photo of her online with an apparent slur for which he has apologised. A state Labor MP has come forward with further allegations of online harassment by Liberal backbencher Andrew Laming, including a bizarre $100 reward he allegedly offered to help him identify people that MP has seen with in public. Kim Richards, the member for Redlands, which overlaps with Laming's seat of Bowman in Queensland, told uh, The Guardian Australia Laming had published a photo of her accompanied with this slur. She had... Sorry, not this slur. I'm not going to read it out, actually. Um, that she had no reason to be in a kid's park as part of what she described as a long-running campaign against her. Um, recent news also has um, said that the former uh, uh, secretary um, says uh, of Andrew Laming, sorry, says she is surprised it has taken so long for complaints against the Queensland MP to be made public, given his history of making constitutions uncomfortable. Sorry, constitutes. I can't speak this morning. <laughs> oh right. my god. Yeah, it just it, the thing with Andrew Laming is that yes, it it does seem like every five minutes there's another sort of allegation against him, and yeah, I think the the biggest. Um, shock is that you know all a lot of these allegations have been public knowledge mm. for some time and he's yeah. he is insistent on harassing his constituent constituents in that way um yeah. what like what does it say that like uh, someone who has made all these like you know someone has all these claims against him continues to act as a member of parliament in that way. And now he's just a backbencher. He hasn't actually mm, resigned. No. Well, this is the thing. Like, there is no imposing sanction for them to resign. Um, they Or, like, even step down while the um, this stuff is getting, I guess, sorted through. Mm. Um, but... He um, holds the majority of uh, the Liberal Party in the lower house, too, which is part of the reason why he has not being compelled to leave entirely. Um, But, yeah, it it does say quite a bit for the entire um, environment of government that, you know, he can't be compelled to leave Mm -hmm. immediately. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's definitely ringing a lot of bells with everything else that's going on Mm -hmm. at the moment. Um, Yeah, I know that there's some recent news with um, Scott Morrison... Yes, Scott Morrison announced his um, 
cabinet reshuffle yesterday um, with a heavy emphasis on um, more women in um, the cabinet as well. Um, the replacement for Christian Porter is Michaela Cash, um, and Anne Rustin is now uh, the Minister for Home Affairs. Um, Scott Morrison did say something um, quite interesting yesterday, which is that he called um, Marissa Payne the, the Prime Minister for Women <laughs> um, by giving her both the Foreign Affairs um, Ministry as well as the actual um, Ministry for Women um, and also announcing her as the co-chair of a new task force in um, promoting women uh, in um, Cabinet and um, Parliament. It's it's not girl Prime Minister and boy Prime Minister. Mm. <laughs> no, it been, I think there was like a swift, very swift backlash against those comments. Um, everyone was basically just asking him quite directly, so who has been the Prime Minister for women <laughs> for the past few years, if not you? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I wonder, you know, with the Andrew Lemming um situation and now the cabinet reshuffle um i wonder if scott morrison is hoping that with these new cabinet ministers or with this reshuffle that people will perhaps forget i does feel that way or they maybe be distracted yeah by that yeah um or feel placated um just the hope that the new cycle will spin onto the next thing yeah, no, absolutely. Mm. I do think it's very much a showy gesture and that's not really interrogating anything else that's yeah. happened. No, and it like makes me think back to that um, Alex- Alexandra Kollontai article that we read where, you know, she stated it doesn't matter for workers whether their master is a man or a woman and just mm. because we've got all these women in um, high-profile positions in cabinet doesn't necessarily mean that the lives of women no, no. Will, um, get any better. Yeah, Anne, Rust- Anne Rustin and you know many of the ministers who are now in the cabinet as a result of this uh, reshuffle are all responsible for horrible things that have happened to um, people across Australia, including RoboDebt. So, mm. yeah, you know, a, a, a female MP is more than capable of doing something bad. Yeah, no, definitely. It kind of has, um, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, the Kamala Harris stuff. Yeah. In terms of, you know, you have a woman of colour uh, that's deputy president, that's not what they call it, vice president, <laughs> um, and it doesn't really mean that the lives of women of colour or people of colour are going to get any yeah, better immediately. Yeah, they materially changed. Exactly, yeah. Um, one last thing, um, part of the Cabinet reshuffle, is that uh, the Prime Minister has moved Christian Porter from the Attorney-General's portfolio, uh, and but he remains in Cabinet as the Industry, Science and Technology Minister. Um, and this move is specifically to... Um, due to concerns about any conflicts of interest while he takes defamation action against the ABC. So I guess he's still involved in um, reforming defamation law. Mm. So that's that's an interesting tidbit. All right. right, Well, that's the news headlines for today. Um, Just going to go to a quick CSA and then we'll be back. Thank you. 
there's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving. Um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family, both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that, that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio at 5 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Before we go to um, alternative news with Genevieve, we're going to play a song. Um, I feel pretty fired up, actually, after our uh, news headlines discussion. Um, So this next song by Pricey is pretty high energy to get you started for this Tuesday morning. Um, it's called Too Dang Good, and Pricey is a non-based hip-hop indie pop artist who has described herself as a singer, songwriter, flower enthusiast, and professional mirror dancer. This song is an absolute bop, but does contain some explicit language, so um, feel free to join us again in 2 minutes and 48 seconds. I look too good to be fucking with you, baby. Don't you know it's true? I'd rather be alone than to be down, down, down for you. You don't understand my heart or when my pages turn, but I look too damn good to be, be, be here with you. Get how love works. I think 
So that was Too Dang Good by Pricey. Um, we're now going to go to Genevieve with the next segment. Yeah, so um, for alternative news today, um, I wanted to speak a little bit about uh, what's going on in Senegal at the moment. I think it's been a little bit underreported. Um, so the West African uh, country has uh, had scores of French-owned businesses across the Senegalese capital, Dakar, um, are still coming to terms with the devastation of smashed windows, broken liquor bottles and per- burned-out premises after days of nationwide anti-government protests. Uh, so French supermarkets, petrol stations and the mobile phone booths were torched and looted as largely peaceful protests against rampant inequality, government corruption and stringent coronavirus restrictions morphed into anger against the formal colonial power. Uh, the latest protests were sparked after the arrest of an outspoken opposition leader who had been accused of rape, Usman Sonko, who is a popular who is popular with the country's youth, has since been released on bail, but the rape charges remain. Uh, the French presence is an everyday reality for Senegalese people, um, and a lot of people, I guess, are counteracting that colonial power that still has a lot of residue um, in the country. But also, there's been a lot of unrest, I think, for uh, young people, which make up the majority of the population there. There's high levels of unemployment, um, I think, especially since the coronavirus um, restrictions, uh, the economy's taken obviously quite a big hit. And so there's quite um, a lot of unrest about that. Um, Well, Senegal, I believe I was reading, it used to be hailed as like one of the most stable um, African, West African countries. So I think a lot of people are quite surprised um, that they're kind of seeing democracy kind of crumble in this way. Um, but there's been a lot of backlash against the current, um, uh, prime minister who, um, I think he's hold, held power for quite a while and they have upcoming elections coming, I think it's 2024 and, um, Usman Sonko, uh, yeah, was a leading favorite. He was very, um, vocal about, uh, French, uh, presence still in the country, also very vocal about, government accepting funding from international um, institutions um, and, I guess, corruption in general. Um, but I think one of the main things that has stood out to me and a lot of people with the story is, and I mean a lot of protests that are going on right now, is how much the youth is kind of taking charge. Uh, they're kind of um, at the forefront of uh, change um, kind of representing a lot of uh, unrest and dissatisfaction with what's going on. And, you know, I don't want to take up all the airwaves discussing something like this. So I grabbed some uh, audio. It's actually from a few years ago, but I think it sums up the struggle for young Africans, especially um, really well. Um, and it's a little uh, snippet from an interview with Dr. Alcinda Honwana. Uh, who's an anthropologist, uh, but um, it just talks a little bit about, you know, what young people are doing. It has also a little bit of an optimistic tone to it as well, so that's why I chose it. But I'm just going to play that for you now. 
young people's capacity to be a force for positive change in this upside-down world of ours. Um, what inspires this hopeful vision? Well, I think being there in the, on, in the field, in the, on the ground with young people, listening to them and seeing, you know, that's what I was saying. They are very hopeful. You know, they're going through so much, but they are fighting. They are fending for themselves. They are criticizing where they can. And there is so much energy that often is not kind of translated in what we see in the media or, uh, you know, there are sporadic moments. But there is a lot of energy. Young people understand their predicament. They understand the situation they're in. And I think, you know, the world is young. The majority of the world population, and especially in the South, in the global South, is young. So these are the, 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 the future leaders, citizens, or whatever, of the, of the future. The, the world, our world, is in their hands. And so they have to figure out. It reminds me of Fanon's... Uh, 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 quote, each generation out of relative opacity has to find its own mission and either fulfill it or betray mm -hmm. it. And I think from the indications that I got throughout my research is that they are looking for ways of fulfilling it. And uh, it will take time. It's not an easy task because they are dealing with obstacles as they go in through the process. But they are, they are energized, they are, and especially after 2011, I think the, the Arab Spring marked this kind of new wave, we have seen more and more uh, engagement. And I think also with the, with the um, online social networks, etc., young people are talking, they are mobilizing. They, and also there is something interesting is that they are looking at the world in a slightly different way. Uh, for example, this whole thing about the horizontal networks, anti-hierarchical, anti-authoritarianism, uh, the way they organize themselves and they don't want anyone to be the leader and, you know, this kind of verticality of the political process. They are, they want something else, but what is it? And I think they're grappling with it. And we are all waiting, you know, what, I think the world is in transition. Something is brewing, but I don't know what. But I, I think if something is going to happen, this is the generation that is going to make that change. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise that... Sorry, that was a... Um some audio played by uh, from Dr. Alicinda Honwana, who's um, an anthropologist, and it's on the struggles of young Africans. Um, I just played you some of that audio in reference to what's happening in Senegal, which is um, statewide protests in retaliation um, for the opposition leader Us Usama Sonko being um, arrested over rape charges. Um, up next, we're going to play um, an interview with uh, Kate Robinson, uh, one of our very, very special co-presenters. Um, interviewed, uh, sorry, Carnegie interviewed Kate Robinson about women no longer wanting to stay silent. 
So today I'll be speaking with Kate Robinson, who was the 2020 Feminist in Residence at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to talk to you. So as a part of your residency, you curated a crowdsourced art exhibition called Make a Fuss. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, So Make a Fuss really came out of, uh, I guess, the reading that I was doing during the pandemic because I started my residency in March 2020. Basically, the first week uh, they gave me the COVID plan and uh, I realized that my residency was actually going to be in my house. So during that time, I guess I was just doing a lot of thinking um, in the context of like BLM and highlighting stuff around Indigenous deaths in custody and like a lot of people, the pandemic threw a lot of spanners in a lot of places and so I was reading Audre Lorde um, and there was one essay of hers that just struck so many chords for me um, and what I was left with was this feeling around what do I no longer want to be silent about and so for Make a Fuss, we basically put a call out um, to women and non-binary people, asking them to create a craft work uh, that answered that question in any medium that they chose. I think for me it was really, really important that the project fo- focused on craft specifically um, because, you know, I'm not a formally trained artist um, and I would have never responded to a call out asking for art. Um, and I know I'm surrounded by so many people in my community who are in a similar position um, who are incredibly creative and have so many things to say, but I guess don't feel as if they um, they could respond um, to something like that. And I think craft is so much more accessible in so many ways. And so that was the other focus that I wanted to have in the project. Yeah, and I think we actually spoke to you last year um, when you were sourcing art for this exhibition. Um, did you find that there were common themes that people explored in the work that they submitted? Yeah, there were. And it was really interesting because I had, first of all, no idea how many people would respond to the call out. Uh, so thanks, you guys, for putting the word out. <laughs> um, and we ended up with 150 pieces, um, and there were definite themes that emerged. Um, as you can imagine, um People chose to create works about uh, the difficulty of, you know, like walking alone um, at home as a woman um, and themes about sexual assault um, and and violence against women really were strong. Um, I think other things that came out that I was, uh, that I was really, you know, it just made me really emotional were a lot of themes about hierarchies in the workplace. Um, one participant created this incredible cross-stitch work that was about, um, it's basically a, a image of a woman screaming and she made it out of uh, old work contracts from an organisation where she'd really struggled um, with the hierarchies and dynamics at, um, within that workplace. Um and then there was random things that came out as well. Like we got about seven pieces that really focused on birds. I mean, like the image that they chose was a bird. And I was like, what is it about talking about silence as a woman that, you know, really brings up this this image of wanting to be free and fly? And so things like that were really interesting too. 
I think speaking of silence, um, there's a lot in the media at the moment about women um, who historically have been silent about things like sexual assault, um, especially with powerful men in the parliament. And I feel like women are speaking up more and more about that. Um, Was that something you saw come up in the art? Yeah, to be honest, so many people reached out to reached out to me and said it was really, really difficult to pick just one silence to craft about because there are so many things that we're silent about. And I think I've been reflecting a lot about, you know, what's happening in Australian politics at the moment um, and the fact that we as women are constantly silenced. And um, as a woman, you know, I feel that, I'm not safe on the streets and as a family violence lawyer, you know, I know that women aren't safe in their homes um, and what's happening at the moment in the media just shows me that women aren't safe in the workplace either, even if that workplace is parliament and that's really scary. But I think the other thing that I've been thinking about a lot um, and I think maybe that's thanks to Oprah is <laughs> that uh, – you know, is is it that we've been silent or is it that we're being silenced? Um, and there's also an impetus on people to pay attention to what women are saying at the moment. And I think, you know, Scott Morrison's approach to date has really uh, made me think that he's not listening. Yeah, I think that's definitely what a lot of women and gender diverse people, and I think especially women of colour, are feeling. Definitely. And race was something that really came out um, in the pieces as well. That, yeah, that there were some really strong voices um, and people who created artworks that were all about, um, you know, the racism that's still present in Australia today. And I think we have in so many ways this view that, uh, you know, we're living in a post-race world or um, a lot, a lot of the commentary that that focuses on race, um, I think we see coming from uh, overseas. And so I think we have a perspective that we don't have a problem here in Australia and that's obviously not the case. Yeah, Yeah, that's becoming more and more clear. Um, You said in your last interview that for you feminism is a lifelong journey. Um, How has Make of Fuss impacted your idea of feminism? Like has it evolved or changed from doing this project? I think Make a Fuss for me has been so much about reclaiming my voice and I think in so many ways being a lawyer has really taught me to fear having an opinion and I think that there's so much about professionalism that is at play there um, and, you know, that that space is so really about you can argue either side and we operate in a system where everything is alleged um, and you're so afraid of putting something in writing and so so scared of having an opinion and so speaking up is really, really scary in that context. And I think what's ironic for me is that, you know, that I'm working in the justice system and uh, that that has in so many ways taken my voice and Make a Fuss has really been about reclaiming that and moving beyond being afraid that I'm going to say something wrong or that my opinion isn't important. Um, and I really felt that when we had the in-person exhibition um, earlier this month, 
it was so colourful. There were so many pieces that dealt with these really, really heavy topics. And yet being in that space with so many of the women that had and gender diverse people who had created the works um, was just incredible. And like so cliche to say this, but so inspiring. Um, and I think part of it was that, you know, it's we're post not post pandemic, but I haven't really been in a space, a really crowded space with so many people. And so it was so special that that space was such a feminist space and such a uh, loud, crafty, cool place to be. Yeah, definitely. So um, now that your residency has ended, do you have a new project on the cards? <laughs> I do. Um, I am currently doing a residency. Or I've just started a residency at Footscray Community Arts Centre. Um, and as part of that project, I am working on a podcast with a good friend of mine, Maria. Um, the two of us are making a podcast about biracial identity. Um, and we are actually at the moment looking for people um, who are keen to be interviewed. Um, and so if you're one of those people and you want to reach out to us, you can find us on Instagram at being biracial podcast or you can email us at being biracial podcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Um, it's really all, all about just navigating the world as a biracial person. And we want to talk to people about language and your name and that moment when you finally connected to both parts of your identity. Um, and we're really keen. We know that talking about race and family is really difficult. So we really want to make that as safe as best as possible. Well, that sounds incredible. Um, thank you for talking to us today, Kate. It has been such a pleasure. Um, and maybe we'll get back in touch once you have the podcast ready to go. I would love that. Thank you so much. Kate Robertson speaking there with Carnegie about exploring biracial identity and women no longer wanting to be to stay silent. We'll put those details up on our website as well if anyone wants to access them. Before we go to our next interview, um, the song we're going to play is by Alara and it's called Murnong Farm, which came out in 2020. Alara is a Yorta Yorta musician, composer, filmmaker and involved in the climate justice movement. Using a double bass and loop station at the core, she is inspired by ancient oral traditions and is a natural storyteller. Alara harnesses hard-hitting spoken word, taking the listener on a journey reflecting cultural, spiritual and environmental empowerment. And I think it's a great reminder that when we are talking about climate justice, um, we do need to centre the voices and experiences of First Nations people. Murnong, yam daisy, yam tuba, nutty, nutritious, delicious. Grandmother, mother, children, Uncle Bruce, lies, confusion, anger, elders, truth, confusion, truth, lesson, archives, answers, agriculture, culture, black traditions, ecosystems, regeneration, conservation, love, ash, dirt, aunties, mothers, grannies, children, Hands, compost, murnong yams, prejudice lifted, prejudice lifted. 
Zalara um, with the song Murnong Farm, uh, a Yorta Yorta musician. Uh, that was a fantastic track, just really chill and uh, just very powerful. Yeah, that was a really great track. Um, now we're going to go to an interview. We have a very special guest on the line. Uh, her name's Ria. She's a youth worker based in Nam who has been a passionate advocate for social justice for many years. Um, she's the daughter of migrant parents, um, and she feels very personally about global immigration rights. She's been fighting in the refugee uh, movement with grassroots activists group Fight Together for Justice and maintains close friendships with many refugees in detention and in the community. Uh, she believes in the right to safety and freedom for all human beings. She joins us now to talk about the refugees detained at the moment. Hi, Ria. How are you going? Hey, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you for joining us so early in the morning. No problem. Thank you for having me. Uh, just to start off, uh, would you be able to explain to our listeners um, your specific involvement and role um, with the detained refugees? Yeah, so um, I guess when it comes down to it, I view myself as a friend and a supporter. Um, so at the moment, there are refugees being held in indefinite illegal 
detainment facilities in Melbourne, um, specifically the Park Hotel prison in Carlton. Um, and I initially started going to the daily protests that Fight Centre for Justice has organised. And through that, I started, I developed relationships with a lot of people who have been held in detention, and as well as some who were recently released a few months ago. Um, so I do a lot of advocacy uh, behind the scenes, sort of with council and that sort of stuff, as well as like on the ground support for, I don't know, talking to lawyers and as well as just, like, offering friendship. Um, yeah, I think I really view myself as a friend when it comes down to it. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to view it, especially when it comes to any activism and grassroots movements. Um, Definitely. I'm sure our listeners kind of know what's going on, but just for a bit of background on what is happening, you know, how have we led up to this point that we have, you know, refugees detained in Carlton? Um, yeah, do you want to explain a little bit about the background? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, so there's like a long... Australia has a long history of detaining people seeking asylum um, and mandatory offshore detention, which was started by the Labor government a number of years ago, resulted in a lot of people seeking asylum being held in offshore detention centres. But the conditions of those centres are pretty horrible and can be quite dangerous and violent. And a lot of people, a lot of the people seeking asylum have a lot of mental health issues and a lot of medical issues. Um, and the Medivac bill, which was a few years ago, or well, two years ago now, I think, two or three years ago now, um, was this bill that was passed and it basically brought refugees from offshore detention to onshore to the mainland. Um, and they were supposed to receive medical treatment for their serious medical condition. But what ended up happening was all these Medivac refugees were actually moved to hotel detention first moved to the Mantra Hotel in Preston. Um, and they were held there for, like, over 12 months, I think about 18 months or something. And they've just been moved to the Park Hotel in Carlton after lots and lots of protests around the Mantra Hotel that the, the hotel actually finished up the contract and said that they weren't taking any more refugees. Um, and they moved to the Park Hotel prison in Carlton. Um and to this day, none of the refugees, people seeking asylum, have received any, any of the medical treatment they were brought to Australia to receive. Yeah, and um, I mean, they're still in Carlton at the moment. Yeah, yeah, so there's still 11 people being held in Carlton. There were initially 60, um, and earlier this year, in January, around 115 People seeking asylum were released from the Park Hotel prison as well as from Martha, which is the Melbourne Immigration Detention Facility in Broadmeadows. So there was around uh, 50 or so released from Park Hotel and then another 50 or so from the Martha facility. Um, so now there's just 11 people remaining in the Park Hotel prison uh, for completely arbitrary reasons. Like, there was no... There was no explanation as to why they they weren't able to be released into the community. So what was the terms of their release? Were they released on bridging visas or...? Yeah, so the people who have been released into the community are released on bridging visas mm-hmm. um, and they are, have supposedly been released as an opportunity to get their medical attention, uh, but it's with the view that they will, once they have completed their medical attention, medical attention 
um, and we've had their needs fulfilled, they will be returned to offshore detention. Um, so at the moment, a lot of our activism and advocacy is now fighting for ensuring that they all receive permanent protection visas um, and this bridging visa isn't just... Because it's supposed to be like a final departure visa. Um, so they're essentially supposed to be here for six months, receive the medical attention and then be sent back for offshore detention. Yeah, so it's important, um, I guess, for people to know that the fight isn't over mm-hmm. once they're out it's of... The, it's, it's very, very important. Um, I think a lot of this could be viewed, like it could be kind of fun by the people in power say, look, like they've been released to the community, but what's actually happening is a lot of peace, porn pieces are being moved on the chessboard, um, and there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff happening, and these people still don't have their freedom. They're still being moved around and offered very little autonomy over their lives. So the fight is far from over. Yeah, and I know that you've um, sat in on a few of the council meetings that have been happening surrounding that. Uh, have there been any new revelations that have happened or um, any signs that the Melbourne Council is budging at all? Unfortunately not. The city of Melbourne has been thoroughly disappointing throughout this whole thing. Um, it's it's not, I guess it's not to be, it's not unexpected given like all the red tape and, that surrounds bureaucracy. But the city of Melbourne signed on to be a refugee welcome zone um, it was like repealed, was renewed in 2014. And this basically means that they signed on to uphold uh, notions of the refugee convention and to welcome and support all refugees within their, within their council. So the fact that the city of Melbourne is allowing detention facilities within its council without any protest shows that it has, it has no desire or no, um, no motive to actually uphold the, what's set out in the Refugee Welcome Zone Convention. Mm. Um, and there was a meeting, there was a a little while ago that a number of us attended and presented, um, yeah, presented our own speeches in favour of a motion that Councillor Rowan Method and Councillor Olivia Ball were putting forward. Um, and their, their motion was basically saying that it's asking the city of Melbourne to publicly condemn all detention to fight for the release, so go to the federal government and argue for the release and permanent protection of all these men. Um, and we all, there's about 10 of us who also put forward our own, like, our own speeches in favour of this motion. And so, and there was also about 200 written applications as well, all in favour, and no, no public dissent. So in the eyes of democracy, that seems pretty clear that the public and members of the council agree with this motion and support it and wanted it to be passed. But what happened was um, the Lord Mayor Sally Cap and Deputy Mayor Nicholas Reese both put forward an amendment to the motion that basically watered down the original motion and essentially would just be a passive passive action that would require the City of Melbourne to do pretty much nothing. Um but it looks like they were doing something. So what the change to the motion was, was that they would ask the federal government why people were being detained and try to ensure that their conditions within detention were improved. But said nothing about condemning illegal indefinite detention, nothing about fighting for their release. Um, So essentially, we're doing nothing. 
So basically and it's just the appearance of doing something. Yeah, absolutely. It almost it, it almost felt like they were trying to assuage activists and in turn it looked like they were doing something without actually having to do doing something. Yeah. Um, and since that since that motion was passed, it took another month or so of people within our group fighting very, very hard to make sure they even sent the letter saying what they said they would say. <laughs> so it al- it almost they almost passed the motion and didn't even follow through on that. Like there was, it required a lot of pressure from our group for that to even happen. Yeah, it, so, yeah, required a lot of pressure to give the appearance. Yeah, to do the bare <laughs> yeah. minimum. Yeah, yeah, absolutely the bare minimum. Um, it's, so it's incredibly disappointing, and I guess as I said, not not unexpected, but I really mm. just hoped that it would be different. Um, and I guess you know, I just wanted to hope that democracy did work and it was in our favour and it did support human well-being, but it doesn't, and I guess I've always known that. For sure. Um, yeah, there's actually a, a quote from that meeting that we were at from Deputy Mayor Nicholas Reese, who said that, quote-unquote, this isn't a caring competition. Um, oh, my gosh. So, yeah, as so though it was like really foolish of us to try and prioritise the care to prioritise yeah. the well-being of others over economic or political aptitude. It's um, not a caring competition. It's just caring yeah. full stop. Yeah. It's just caring full stop, exactly. And that was, I think that really kind of painted a picture over how the city of Melbourne is viewing this. because It's essentially like, yeah, don't tell me that I don't care. But, yeah, yeah. But don't point us, the mirror like, at oh, me. It <laughs> like, yeah, it doesn't seem like you do care if you're not willing to do anything. Yeah, for um, sure. Um, and they, yeah, sorry, you go. No, <laughs> um, no, please go on. I've, um, it's really interesting hearing about this, but I guess I really wanted to ask, you know, you've had close contact with some of the detainees. I think more, most importantly, you know, how are they feeling in all this? Yeah, I mean, so it's important to note, like, they're not as much as groups, so they all feel very differently yeah. about everything. Um, and some some of my friends are really, really staunchly fighting for themselves in a very public way, and some of them are keeping to themselves. Got like who people have been released, got their got their apartment, got their house. They kind of just want to like do their own thing and not really engage. And they're all that's all super valid. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess in general, what I've been hearing is how tired everyone is, and that goes for people who are still in detention and who have been released in, well, in a vague way, been released. Um, and I think a common theme is that everyone's really, really tired. Tired of being sad and tired of being scared and tired of being uncertain of what their future holds. Tired of seeing their friends on the other side of themselves and not knowing why they didn't get released. Tired of seeing their friends inside and not knowing why they didn't get released. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think everyone's really tired, and to be honest, I'm so in such awe that my friends have been fighting for this long and managed to keep the attitudes that they have. I, I, yeah, it's incredibly amazing. Like, I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the solidarity that's come out of this has been absolutely amazing to see. And I guess, yeah. you know, moving forward... Um, if people do want to get involved, if they do want to help out as much as possible, um, you know, what are some of the things that they can do? 
Yeah, I think the first, first and foremost, the biggest thing is presence. Um, so our group organises daily protests um, at 6pm um, on weekdays in front of the Park Hotel and 3pm on weekends. And so anyone can come in, can drop by. We have plenty of signs. Um, and it's a really good way to kind of engage in the movement and meet the people that you're fighting for as well. I think that's incredibly important. It's not about showing up, yelling a bit and leaving and not having any engagement in what's actually going on. It's about, like, knowing who you're fighting for and knowing how they feel and asking what they need. Um, so, yeah, definitely coming to the daily protest is a good one. If you can't do that, I would say get involved in one of our email parties or calling parties. We do a lot of that where we call different politicians from around Australia, from different departments, um, demanding the release of refugees. So you can find all of that on the Fight Together for Justice page. Um, yeah, I think those are good, good places to start. And if you want to donate money to recently released refugees as well, you can donate to Refugee Voices, which is a refugee-led um, not-for-profit organisation, and they're doing a lot of amazing work as well. Yeah, and we can put some of those links up on our website. And I think, yeah. um, you know, reiterating your point of, like, presence there is probably the most important thing at the moment. I mean, every time I go past or have been there myself, there's always been a presence, which has been absolutely incredible to mm, see. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing to see. And people keep rocking up and... It, it's really nice to know that there is such a strong community of people who care around as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, Ria. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and talk to us about this. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that this issue got to be talked about a bit more as well. Definitely. Very important and I appreciate it. No worries at all. Thank Thanks, you. Ria. No worries. Bye. Bye. Uh, that was Ria Palay. Um, who's a youth worker based in Nam, uh, talking about uh, the refugees currently detained. There's 11 refugees still currently detained in Carlton. Um, and Ria does a lot of activism with the group Fight Together for Justice. We'll be back right after this. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, 
It has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Um, the time is 8.01 a.m. Uh, we have a very special guest on the line at the moment. Um, she's a repeat offender of Tuesday <laughs> Breakfast, uh, but we love having her on. Uh, her name is Kristen O'Connell. Um, she's a media spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed, Unemployed Workers' Union about... Um, I'm sorry, we're going to be talking to her about uh, the implementation of the cashless debit card and the impact of the discontinuation of JobKeeper and rental moratoriums um, and the impact this will have on the under and unemployed um, in Australia. Uh, how are you going? Thank you so much for joining us, Kristen. Thanks, Genevieve. Thank you so much for having me again. Oh, of course. We love having you on the show. Um, you know, I've I'm sure, I hope our listeners know by now, but um, if they don't, would you be able to just um, explain, you know, what the uh, Australian Unemployed Workers' Union is and what they do? Absolutely. So um, we're a group of unpaid workers who are run an organisation by the unemployed for the unemployed and underemployed and insecure workers too. Um, we really campaign um, to improve our welfare system, make it actually safe for everyone. Um, and we, one of our most important functions is that we provide a direct support service for people who are being bullied or threatened or just confused about their interaction with their job agency and employment services. And employment services um, essentially is the bunch of rules that make no sense um, that you're forced to comply with just to get your poverty payment. And so at the moment, payments are back down to about half the poverty line. Yeah, I'm going to jump straight into that, actually. Uh, You know, last Sunday marked the day that both JobKeeper and the rental moratorium ended for Australians. Um, Would you be able to break this down in terms of what exactly this means? Yeah, so at the moment we're still waiting to see the real effects of JobKeeper ending unfold. Um, What we do know is that there have, I think there are about one million people who were still having their employment supported by JobKeeper um, at the end of the program. Um, You know, we've been hearing from people that, for example, they may not 
be expecting that they're fully going to lose their job, but they're going to be earning less after JobKeeper ends than they are now. And so JobKeeper is already very low. It's actually so low that you can qualify for unemployment payments. So if you're getting JobKeeper, it's about seven fifty a fortnight, and you can get a small top-up from that payment from JobSeeker. So we're going to see people being pushed back down either because of lower work hours or because they're going to be transitioning fully onto JobSeeker, which, as I said, is about half the poverty line for a single person. Um, and, you know, it, the, this, with the pressure of housing costs that we've seen over the last couple of months, somehow in this country, housing prices continue to skyrocket no matter what happens, not even a global pandemic could kill the disgusting inflation in our property market. And so with hearing from people all over the country that the pressure on their budget as these payments are being reduced and slashed and gotten rid of entirely, while um, people are spending extraordinary amounts on, on snapping up investment properties and homes, and not only that, but people relocating. And so people who are a bit better off and can afford to have been migrating out of the cities en masse. And so we're particularly hearing about the pressure in regional housing markets where people who have in the past been able to rely on lower cost housing are now finding that they can't afford their rent anymore. And, you know, we're talking about in Toowoomba, I was um, hearing this morning on the ABC, there's something like 0.7% uh, rental vacancies. It's just not possible right now for low-income people to be able to find a home if they're looking for one. And lots of people, because of these cuts, are going to be forced out of their home as well. So the effect of all these things combined is pretty catastrophic. And the outcome ultimately is that people's mental and physical health is being destroyed. Yeah. And it's important to remember as well that the COVID crisis still in itself is not over. Like Brisbane is in lockdown right now. Um, so this is going to be ongoing through the rest of the year while, while, you know, people don't have vaccines. So there's still going to be job insecurity as we don't know, you know, whether we have to lock down or not every now and then. And, you know, people's jobs are still at risk. Absolutely. And, you know, in Brisbane today and for the next two days, there are going to be people who've lost shifts. And many of those people are just getting a little bit of top-up income to help them survive on JobSeeker because right now there are about 260,000 people who are actually employed who are on an unemployment payment because their jobs suck. So, you know, that job insecurity problem has been around for a long time. It's been dramatically increasing over the last couple of decades with casualisation, employers being given more power over workers, um, and wages being really flat for a very long time. We've seen these employment conditions. They haven't been resolved by government responses to COVID, and it was a real opportunity mm. actually to do things to try and protect Definitely. people in those types of jobs. Um, and, you know, now, yes, we, we're seeing just people have no ability to predict when they're going to be able to get their shifts or not. I think that's a, that's a really good thing that the AUW d- does as well, is that emphasising that unemployment is in itself a labour issue, that, you know, people who are still working, still don't earn enough, um, that they need to have the assistance of Centrelink as well. I think a lot of the time if people aren't, don't have any experience with Centrelink or any sort of welfare payment, they don't understand that a lot of the time working people need that help too. Absolutely. And, you know, I was looking at some numbers recently for a Senate submission that we did on income support and it is ex- it was extraordinarily depressing to find that if you're on youth allowance and you're 16 years old, you can actually work nearly 30 hours a week you can, and you're still below the poverty line mm-hmm. and you're still on an unemployment payment. Now, that's slightly less extreme for older workers, but it's still 25 hours, I think, at the minimum wage or something. Um, so it's really, you can be a 
worker with a lot of hours um, in stable employment over a long period and still not escape poverty and still be reliant on a Centrelink payment that comes along with those obligations that I talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah. I think um, especially, you know, uh, pinpointing the vulnerability of like casual workers, I think that's especially what JobKeeper did as well by kind of being like, you know, JobKeeper is for permanent workers or part-time workers, full-time workers. And I think they did adjust it in the end to um, kind of encompass more casual workers. But I think that really uh, highlighted the issue there as well. And then we had, um, you know, the Labor Party sticking the boot in for casual workers who might have been getting a bit more under JobKeeper than they were getting um, when they were working before it came in. So they did exclude casual workers who'd only had their job for less than a year. Yeah. But people who, you know, had been previously trying to survive on the poverty line or slightly above it ended up closer to the minimum wage. And, you know, they were kind of blamed for getting too much money, whereas, you know, what we know was really the problem was, um, what companies getting JobKeeper who were like having hundreds of millions of dollars of profits and shareholder dividends and executive bonuses and stuff like that. So it was really depressing to see that. Um, it was lucky that it ended up getting extended to some casuals, but you're right, excluding people um, caused a lot of grief and hardship. Mm. Um, and, you know, just going back also to the point about unemployed workers being doing labour, it's also just a fact that no matter whether you have any wage work or not, the government designs unemployment into the economy. So literally by being unemployed, you're doing the work of keeping inflation down. It's the government plan to do that. So if they're planning to keep a million people unemployed just to serve that function, then they need to make sure we can afford to live. Yeah. And I wanted to get into, you mentioned it a little bit before, but, you know, the correlation between um, job seeker and now the end of job keeper, um, what kind of relation do they have and what kind of impact does this have on people already in low wage work? Mm, so, yeah, like I said, um, we've got a group of people who are already eligible for job seeker payments. It doesn't mean all of them would have been on job seeker because many people may not know that that was an option to available to them. Um, but yeah, we're going to see, I think the Treasury described it uh, last week in Senate estimate as bumpy, and I think that's the only way to predict it. They said they think up to 150,000 people will lose their job when JobKeeper ends. Yeah. Um, it's very hard, you know, Treasury have put out some pretty wild statistics in the last few months that have proven incredibly off the mark. So they said that they'd get, you know, 450,000 jobs supported by JobMaker with 45,000 of those being new jobs. And so far, we've got about 600 jobs. Mm. Um, so it's entirely possible that those numbers are out. But if we're looking at another 100,000 people, say, coming onto unemployment payments, um, that's a dramatic increase. Um, there may already be many of those people on them. But either way, whether you're already on JobSeeker, whether you're not, whether you're earning wages, everyone who's got any interaction um, with those programs this week is going to experience a cut. And so we're talking about, quite literally, millions of Australians, people between sort of, um, you know, very, very rough figures would sort of be between two and a half and three million people who are going to be experiencing a cut. Wow. Yeah. Um, extremely and disappointing. There's families as well, right? There's like a million yeah. kids in those families too. And child poverty in this country is, is appallingly mm. high. I think it was one in six kids that I saw yesterday in the news are currently in poverty. And that's a big increase from last year. Yeah, we don't. I, I, we barely have time to even get into how much it impacts families and couples and just the kind of regulations that of, that Centrelink forces people to be in poverty for no real reason other than it seems like cruelty. Mm-hmm. 
That's right. It, it is cruelty. And honestly, even um, economists and big, uh, you know, industry groups have now been calling for a much more substantial increase in job seeker for quite some time. And so we really just say that it feels like the government hates poor people more than they love their donors because that's not our conventional allies. Um, and they also are saying, you know, they have different reasons, but they do think people should be able to eat properly and regularly and access healthcare and all those basics that we can't really see people having um, right now. So, yeah, there's uh, a lot going on there. We don't really know how to change the government's mind on this. Um, obviously, we've tried really hard, and last year it felt like there may have been some cause uh, for hope. Um, and now a lot of people are feeling like that hope has been ripped away uh, with these really drastic cuts. Yeah, and I think there is an image kind of permeating the media cycle of, you know, these um, benefits are generous, like we, the government's yeah. being generous and, like, you know, compared to other countries, like, you know, they're, they're on such good, like, benefits and blah, 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 and, like, that kind of, like, public... Our perception of underemployed and unemployed people still is really strong. They expect mm, people to be grateful. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, it's absurd for the government to compare us to other OECD countries because, for example, like the social wage in Australia, it does not compare. So social wage includes things like education, housing, healthcare. And when we're comparing our unemployment payment in a country where we have to pay even with Medicare, really high costs to access healthcare, um, extraordinarily high housing costs, you know, up there with the highest in the world, um, and very little access to public and social housing, waiting lists that are 10 years and longer. Of course, we can't get by on these payments because we have all those extra costs, even sending your kid to school, even if you send them to public school. You've got uniforms, you've got textbooks, all sorts of things that just aren't included and really put strain on people on low incomes and people in the welfare system. So we don't actually have generous payments at all. Mm. Um, there are lots of different measures of the poverty line, and no matter which one you choose, even the lowest poverty line, we are very far below it. Um, and, you know, the poverty line reflects what it takes to live in our country, not in another country. Um, we also have very high prices for basic costs. So, yeah, it's it's just one of those lines people like to roll out to make them sound reasonable. Um, people are expecting unemployed people to be grateful for support, but they don't realise, I think, the human and health cost of these systems. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really affordable to actually keep people out of poverty. There are lots of expenses in this country that we could cut if we needed to which we don't, um, I think unemployment payments should be the first thing to be increased and the last thing to be cut because um, they also have lots of other flow-on costs and these myths about people turning down work are just absolute uh, nonsense and we've been trying to get data and that you know constantly the government fails to produce anything to back that up and all of the data so far proves that it's false. So, yeah, we've got a lot of challenges. Yeah, definitely. Um, I also just wanted to men uh, sorry, ask you, um, you know, in light of the temporary pause that was put on the cashless debit card, uh, now that's been lifted, uh, you know, and it's something like forcing 4,000 Australians to be put on the welfare card um, here at 3CR. You know, we've spoken at length about the detrimental impact this, these card, uh, this card will have on people, especially First Nations people. And I mean, in conjunction with JobKeeper ending um, and many people going on JobSeeker and potentially going on this card, you know, what are uh, the AUWU uh, thoughts on this? Um, can you explain the impact further? 
Yeah, I mean, the cashless debit card, I'm sure because you guys do talk about it and give it the coverage it needs, people are aware that it's a deeply racist program. Um, and so we're going to see, as you said, several thousand more people um, pushed onto the card forcibly as a result of these changes, um, the reintroduction of uh, new participants in the card. So people who lost work because of a global pandemic are going to be put on income management where they don't have control over their own spending, where they're forced to shop at businesses that engage in price gouging because they know people aren't allowed to go to smaller and more local businesses. Um, and that's on top of, so there's already about 11,000 people on the card. People who have lost their work because of COVID are going to be punished as well. But that's actually not the end of it because the same, um, there was new legislation brought in in December, forced through um, with the help of Sterling Griff. Um, absolute coward from South Australia who flipped at the last minute. And that now means that in the Northern Territory, where we've got sort of more, well over 20,000 people um, on the basics card, which quarantines a lower amount of your income. So it's 50% on basics card, 80% on CDC. They're now giving the air quotes option um, to transition onto CDC by choice. But we know that in the past with things like this, the government has kind of coerced people into changing over. Um, so we're really worried about that as well. We're potentially going to see tens of thousands more people on the CDC um, based on false information that may be provided to them or misleading information. And we've seen everyone in Cape York, which is about 90 people, forced onto it as well. So it's certainly the government is going hard on this and that's flying in the face of the... Um, evidence that's been provided to date that uh, age shows that it doesn't achieve what the government wants it to um, and it also is actually contributing to harm in communities and we're looking at places like the East Kimberley where the Indigenous population of people on the card is 80% in Sedona in South Australia it's 76% so that just kind of illustrates the type of approach the government is taking to treating um, black folks and their communities as petri dish for the most punitive um, programs that breach human rights um, and really cause a great deal of harm. It's like what you, we were saying before, that it's cruelty. The cruelty is the point. Mm-hmm. It's really, you know, paternalistic and, you know, people who don't have a choice in whether they lose their jobs or not um, are being humiliated with this income management program. That's right. And, you know, again, we've really been trying to highlight for people recently um, the the costs beyond just not being able to afford to live. So people's mental health is horrifically impacted by this stuff. We, uh, every time there is a new change um, announced for these policies, whether it's mutual obligations, whether it's payment cuts, um, whether it's other changes like CDC, we see a wave of our members, um, whether they're chatting on social media or contacting us directly in absolute despair, um, talking about, um, and just a content warning here for folks, uh, talking about suicidal ideation, talking about losing their homes. There's real material harm being done. And not just that. I mean, we have talking about women's safety right now because our government can't even protect its own employees um, or, in fact, its own MPs. Um, we've got the biggest impact on women's safety in this country. The worst impact is in our welfare system because it traps um, people in jobs that are unsafe, in jobs where they may experiencing, be experiencing sexual harassment, in experiencing bullying and it traps um, people and obviously the vast proportion of those are women in situations where they're experiencing family violence because they cannot afford to escape. So there are just so many um, consequences to these brutal policies that are, you know, again, seemingly just in place to punish us for being poor.
Yeah. Yeah, income tests um, prevent uh, if you're in a relationship, uh, if your partner earns above a certain level, you can't actually get Centrelink. And that has a very obvious impact. That means that women are trapped in abusive relationships. Yes, yeah. And that can be as far as, like, you don't have to be, I guess, wedded to this person. You can have just be, like, you don't even have to be living with this person as much as you've been together and you kind of share some financial yeah. um, responsibility. Um, yeah, and that means you can't save money and mm-hmm. like to even leave in the first instance, let alone um, getting uh, an income payment after that. That's right. And the other thing on that is people may not realise how low those income thresholds are. So I think it's sort of if you're earning, if your partner is earning about the minimum wage or maybe it's the median wage. Sorry, I haven't checked that one this morning, folks. There's too many numbers floating around mm-hmm. in my head. But that is the level at which you lose your payment. So it's really not as if you're living in a comfortable household where potentially you could maybe, you know, work things that you secretly squirrel money away. There's just like so little breathing room. Um, and, you know, there's lots of ways, you know, you may be in a household where there isn't much wage work at all and everyone is on an income support payment. All of these ways in which you're forced into poverty um, just prevent you from having any options or even just being able to access a support service. Um, so, yeah, there's just it's, it's endless, really. It feels the way that um, it's designed to hurt people and people do end up experiencing a range of different harms as a consequence of just being on this payment. Yeah. And just to finish up, um, Kristen, would you be able to tell our listeners where they can access information from the AUWU or where they can access any other information about what's going on in terms of cuts? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have a really wonderful active community on Twitter and Facebook. Um, We encourage everyone to kind of follow us there. If you do need any support, Um, If you're on a payment, even if you may be looking at getting onto a payment and you're not quite sure, please contact us um, on our peer support service. So you can do that via Facebook through sending us a direct message. Um, You can do that on the helpline, which is 1-800-A-U-W-U-4-U. And so, uh, and sorry, just to give that in numbers only, it's 1-800-289-848. Um, and then there's our website as well. It is a little bit old, so please forgive us. We're all volunteers and we don't, and we're not funded. Um, we're not politically aligned. So we've got a lot of work ahead of us to try and get that up to scratch. But there is a lot of information there. You can join. Um, membership is free for everyone, whether you are unemployed or whether you want to be a solidarity member to show your support for the union. Um, and you can get, you'll get information from us when there is a big change. Um, and there's also information on our website. So, um, please do, uh, have a look. Check us out um, and join up if you think that that's the kind of information that would be helpful for you. Awesome. Yeah, and obviously we'll be putting that on our website. I think that your website and your social medias are pretty up to scratch, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, really informative, I think. Um, But thank you so much, Kristen, for joining us yet again. Always lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, folks. That was Kristen O'Connell, um, who's the media spokesperson for Australian Unemployed Workers' Union, talking about the discontinuation of JobKeeper and rental moratoriums and also the impact of the cashless debit card. We'll be back right after this. There's kind of a lot of... A lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving 
um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative heteronormative family life but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity you know it's around the family life in the suburb as opposed to many you know single individuals who have shared queer family both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am on digital and online 3cr radical radio You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're going to go to a track. Um, this is a song called Hold Up by Australian artist Rissa. Ooh, you got me wild now. Switching up positions before I even get a chance to say damn. You still acting out. Wish I could have seen your face, but you ain't got the patience to wait. Ooh, been gone for a minute, and I can't seem, can't see, can't seem just to get it off my mind. I'm a fucking soul too, playing up just like a child with your whole damn attitude. So hold up, why you trying to play me like that? Me running round in circles, yes you did so Cause I'm so caught Hey baby, why you trying to play like that? Emotion to skyrocket, and I ain't trying to cop it No I didn't come all this way just to play So you better be a big man now you need to say, got to get it up your chest, tell me what you feel, do you know what's best, can you tell what's real or fake, love, I don't come to play, love, get off my mind, off my back and soul too, playing up just like a child, with your whole damn attitude, so hold up, why you trying to play me like that? Me running round in circles, yes, you did so. Cause I'm so caught up. Yeah, you got me tripping, you acting different, have my emotions twisted. The difference between our recent decisions got me thinking. If splitting is a possibility or a rental deep, it's getting very taxed and every beat like a rental fever. Here I go again, talking about you over drums. Put up a pom pom to the beating in my heart, baby. Please don't start. Take the key at the ignition, put the key into your heart. What's that women's intuition saying? Hold up. I think we need a break, baby. Let's blow up. Reconsider the reasons why we blow up. 
All that toxic energy made me wanna throw up. But I know it's for us, and from here we'll only go up. So it's a new epidemic. We love sick and can't stand it. But above all of the damage, there's no one else always standing for. Been like that for a while, and we made it this far. So don't switch up on me now. I'm saying, hold up. What? Like you're trying to play me like Me running round in circles, yes you did so. Cause I'm so caught up. That was a song by Rissa called Hold Up. Uh, we're coming to the end of our show now. Um, just to announce, uh, you know, what was on the show today. Um, uh, Kanagi interviewed Kate Robinson, uh, the 2020 feminist in residence at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre, about her exhibition Make a Fuss um, and women not wanting to stay silent anymore. Um, we also had the pleasure of uh, chatting to Ria Pillay, who's a youth worker based in Nam, who's been at the forefront of um, activism for the refugees detained in Carlton. Um, I urge people to get down there and show their support um, if you can. Um, and also we had a chat to Christian O'Connell, who's part of the AUWU, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, about the impact of the discontinuation of JobKeeper and the rental moratoriums, and also the impact of the cashless debit card. Um, now, up next, we've got Giselle Hanna with Accent of Women. Highly recommend you ch- still tune in to 3CR. Um, and, of course, Wednesday breakfast tomorrow morning for all your current affairs news. But thank you so much for joining us. I uh, hope everyone has a great week. See you later, guys. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. They're 100% recycled cards, Plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.